Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of Don't Be So Dramatic. My name is Rachel and this is the podcast where I talk to different people in the entertainment industry to discover what their job involves and how they got there. Oh, so... For this week's episode, I had with me the renowned acting teacher and director from Australia, Kevin Jackson. Now, if you don't know who Kevin is, I just don't know where you have been all your life, really. Kevin is um, highly sought after in the industry. He has taught such people as Baz Luhrmann, Richard Roxburgh, Miranda Otto, Kate Blanchett, Sam Worthington, Ryan Kaur. That is 1% of the very extensive list that um, of people that Kevin has taught. So I was absolutely honoured to have him in the studio with me and to speak to him and um, just pick his brain about all of the knowledge that he's just sitting in there inside his head. Oh my goodness. Um, Kevin was a NIDA graduate back in the 70s and so he actually ended up teaching at NIDA for over 20 years. He's also been over to the States and taught at the American Conservatory Theatre in San Francisco for more than 14 years and now he's back over here teaching. He teaches at the Actors Centre Australia and he also teaches at the Hub Studio. How exciting. So I just want to say a big thank you to Kevin for coming in and giving me his time because his time is very precious. He has some things to do. He's always a busy man, you know. When I was recording this episode, unfortunately, I accidentally lost the first 15 minutes of the interview, but I've tried my best to just catch you up on what the conversation was. Um, I promise you, it doesn't affect the rest of the conversation. We're just going to have to live our lives and listen to the rest. And I promise you it is worthwhile. Kevin is so lovely and so generous with his knowledge and time. So I absolutely know that you will enjoy this episode. So without further ado, let's jump in. All right. Well, thank you for joining me. I've just had technical difficulties, but that is okay. So we were just talking about... um, basically looking at yourself on screen Mm -hmm. and um, uh, the ways that actors kind of, I guess the first initial lesson that you need to learn as an actor is to be able to um, be kind of non-judgmental in the way that you look on screen Mm -hmm. and to be able to be critical of yourself, um, I guess, in a way that is helpful to you and to be able to give yourself the proper kind of points where you need to kind of um, go from in order to make your performance true and real and affecting to the Mm. audience. Um, Yeah, so what I wanted to ask as we were just talking about it in film is that obviously in film it is kind of, it's easier to look at yourself on screen and to go, oh, okay, yeah, I can see that. But you were saying that um, you know, going from teaching theatre to screen, you can show your students basically like, oh, you know, yeah, yeah. Um, that that is where you were yeah. kind of doing that thing. This is what you're doing, not yeah. what you think you're doing. That's right. So um, for theatre, how, how does that work? How What are the, the ways that you kind of teach in order to be able to, because, we, you know, we're not standing there with a mirror, yeah, yeah, we're not yeah, standing there with yeah. a camera. Well, that's a... About the actor has to trust the director, you know? Yes. They have to trust. And it's also the response of your partner, you know, if, if the chemistry between the two of you isn't working, you've got to sort that out. It's mm. about being comfortable with your partners and then trusting the 
As a director, I don't think it's my job to tell you what to do. My job is to referee what you do. Okay. So I expect you to come in with an offer and I go, hmm, I have never thought of that. That's great. Let's run with it. Or, hmm, that's terrific. Have you thought of this as well? So I never tell anyone what to do. I kind of referee and shape it using the writer and my impression of what the writer's intentions may be as the harness to... So well, we don't run away with our own imaginations and end up playing ourselves, but trying to say, use ourselves to within the boundaries of what the writers put on the page. Yeah, <clears throat> and you like um, a lot of your favorite playwrights are Chekhov, mm-hmm. um, Ibsen, all the kind of Sam Shepard. Yep. Yes, I go into Shepard and Arthur Miller. I'm not very good with Tennessee Williams. I, I, I admire him, but as a director, I find it quite difficult okay in contrast to say Miller or uh, who's writing at the same period yeah so sure it's, it's, it's that poetic mix of Tennessee which is romantic poetry and Miller has he's more Ibsen influenced so he has an agenda and there's a kind of prose poetry about his work it's cleaner it's not not it's not not poetic but it's tougher it's more it's clearer sure because it's agenda based yeah um well i wanted to know can you pinpoint exactly why it is that you're drawn to i guess the classics um Mm. i was kind of thinking about this in the car because my favorite play is the importance of being earnest Mm -hmm. and the reason why i like it is i just because I was theatre-based back in the day and that was my Mm. love and being on stage, I think the idea of putting on a costume which is very different to what you would wear day to day and using language that is different and it's so kind of classical but still witty and funny today, Mm. that sort of style is kind of what draws me into that play. That's kind of like, oh, I really like that. Yeah. Yeah. Ernest is... uh... I've been in it. That's the first play I ever directed. Oh, really? When I was 16. Oh, there you go. <laughs> I, I directed and cast myself in the lead into Jack, you know. So Great. <laughs> and the rest of my friends played around me. But um, So I've been in maybe three or four, and the last one I did was at NIDA with Ryan Kaur playing Algernon. Um, uh, Wild is difficult. And particularly, uh, Ernest, I think, is a perfect comedy. It's the perfect comedy. Yeah, I agree. But uh, for young contemporary actors, it's quite a difficult entry point because it's so tech, you have to be so technically precise. Yes. And also contextually styled. Style is such a incredible, most young actors these days have no idea of that contextual period style, which and if you don't do it, so it's interesting when you look at the famous Ernest, you know, with um, uh, those great actors, and then you look at the Judy Dench version, David Evans version, and then you look at uh, uh, Judy Dench, and the difference is that the 50s actors are closer to the style than the contemporary actors of that of the Judy Dench thing. So the young actors keep breaking the formality of the construct that is Wilde's perfectionism. Yes, yeah. And whereas the other one, I would say, of the eight actors in that play and in that film, I'd say six of them know it and two of them are exploring it. Whereas in the other one, 
maybe one knows it and the other seven are exploring it. <laughs> sure. And it's such a difficult piece. But the reason why, you know, like my favorite writer is Chekhov, you know, mm -hmm. so. And the reason why I like Chekhov is because it's completely ambiguous. There's sure. no definitive way to do any of the plays. There's no right or wrong way. It depends upon your cast, their life experience, and their... So I did Three Sisters for Sport yes, for Joe yeah. a few years ago. And I, I, my audition was, I want people that can act, but I want Great. mad actors. <laughs> but I want mad actors. I want them to approach this play as if it were written this morning. Not to, so you need to know the heritage of the play, but you yeah. need to throw that away and rediscover it. So the great thing about Chekhov is that he was a doctor, and uh, so he was able to, as a writer, uh, analyze and symptoms of somebody's personality, not only the physical. He wasn't a psychiatrist, except, as you know, he, his insight into the persona of individuals, which has to do with the fact that at the age of 25, he diagnosed himself with leukemia, so he knew he was going to die. So he had this empath empathy for mortal sense of mortality and the ridiculousness of life. So he had that along with his, uh, his scrutiny. He was able to look at people and analyze that. So the psychology of the plays in 1890, 1902, Three Sisters, <clears throat> fitted that period. Yes. But we now, in 2018, 2019, our general knowledge of psychology is so much more sophisticated and a thousand times greater than any of the actors that Chekhov worked through. But the truth of what he's written and what he's observed works as truthfully today as it did then, except we've we've got much more expansive view of it, which mm. means that the work keeps uh, it's been discovered according to the knowledge that of science and psychology and emotional, etc. So it was different in 1902, and so we're much more sophisticated in 2000, but the plays still hold together, you know. Yes. So I don't think you can ever see, you'll never see a definitive Three Sisters, you know, or Seagull or... Whatever. Uh, the, the four great plays, you know, Cherry Orchard, Three Sisters, Seagull, Uncle Vanya, uh, you know, Platanov and Ivanov, they're, they're, they're practice plays, really, to get to where, <laughs> he's to, to where he's going to get to. But it's that observation of humanity uh, and the ambiguity of the possibility of the characters that make him... Yes. You know, I've directed Three Sisters because I taught in drama schools, etc., maybe six or seven times and it's never ever been the same and one character Marcia looks as if she's the most important sister on stage but it couldn't be Olga you know it can be Irena or anything for Shinnan but it could be the Baron depending upon the expertise and the knowledge emotional knowledge intellectual knowledge of the actor playing it so you can play for Shinnan as a dumbass <laughs> or you can play him as a really highly intelligent person yeah. depending upon that which is what I find fascinating it's why I go into that. The Ibsen plays, they're not as flexible, but their agenda, their social agenda is still as relevant as it was. I think what I've discovered that Ibsen is too highly, people revere him too much. He's actually much funnier than people direct him as. Right. You know? The same thing with Shepard. I think I was lucky when I was working at the American Conservatory Theatre in San Francisco, uh, Sam Shepard was directing Fool for Love, the first production with Ed Harris and Kathy 
Harris and um, I forget his name, but they were at the Magic and I was fortunate enough to go to rehearsal. So Sam was sitting two rows down from me. So this cowboy artist was directing his play for the first time. And what most Australian uh, people uh, that attempt Shepherd is, they underestimate the subliminal violence that are in the plays. Okay. You know, like you, when you look at Feel for Love, which I've seen several times here, you've got to remember that he it stipulated that the walls are double-sided, they're hollow, and there are microphones down all the wall. So when you hit the wall, it reverberates with a violent noise. <laughs> when I went to rehearsal, Ed Harris had broken his arm. Okay. Uh, the girl was covered in bruises because <laughs> it was pretty tough. You know, and yeah. In Australia, there we're much too polite with it. They they don't realise the absolute violent anger that's inherent in those plays, so they don't quite work. It was a bit like going to see a Baby Doll at the Ensemble. You can't. It was not a very good production, uh, and part of it was that they had forgotten that it was written whilst Tennessee and Elliot Kazan and those people were working from the method from Strasbourg's bald. So if you don't include the method in your approach to the play, mm. it can't work. It just it's, won't work. Yeah, it's just words. Yeah, yeah. Words and also a fantasy of what the play's about rather than the brutality of the Strasbourg exposure that, you know, I don't like Strasbourg. I think he went far too far, which is why he's not taught really in American schools anymore because it led people into madness instead of, <laughs> instead of into artistry. You know? Sure, yeah. which is not what we want. No, 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 that's and right. We want to keep our actors healthy, you know. And, and so my idea is that you are able to switch it on and switch it off, switch it on and switch yes. it off. It's inevitably, depending upon the scale of the role and demands of it, there will be a shadow that hangs over you. But hopefully you're in a healthier shadow than if you were playing raw Strasbourg. Mm, for sure. Um, I, I think that that is something that I often have conversations with people about is um, the, the mental health of actors and basically I just don't know how I feel about the glorification of these actors who are very much um, dam like I don't know if damaged is the right word but damaged individuals you yeah, know yeah. very much trying to destroy themselves through substance abuse and all that yeah. but then they give these amazing performances yeah, yeah, yeah. and we go oh my goodness they're yeah. artists but yeah, yeah. in reality well, i just read a, a great book on the making of the film giant you know with mm -hmm. um rock hudson and elizabeth taylor and uh James Dean, you know, and reading this book, which was published this year, you just go, it was directed by great George Stevens, so highly talented individual, different parts of their career. But when you read the chapters dealing with James Dean, he was obviously Strasbourg uh, guided. He was obviously a very damaged boy, yes. like really damaged. And unfortunately, he indulged himself in that damaging so that working with other professionals, he was outside the box. And although what you see on screen for that particular film works, you find that his work has dated because it was a personal psychology that was being okay. captured, not necessarily the character written in the play. Sure. Yeah. So that's, and I think you've got to be healthy to be able to do it. Yeah. Well, to have a long career at yeah, least. But yeah, yeah. And so it's interesting, you know, listening to in Phoenix and all of the um, huge interviews we've had about 
his exploration into Joker because mm. I think it's an incredible performance physically. It's un- unbelievable. But he says he has no shadow. And I, uh, I don't know about that. I don't know how you could do what you do in that film. Mm. I mean, there will be physical exhaustion, uh, intellectual exhaustion, emotional, but I don't think you can play that darkness without some shadow. But he, mm. he says, because he, he's worked on it technically, he feels and says to whatever that he goes in, he's able to switch on, switch off, switch on, switch off without much hanging. You know, I doubt that, but but I hope it is because that's the only way you can survive as an actor when you're playing those great demanding works. Richard III, you know, that stuff. To watch Kate Mulvaney play Richard and see the courage that she had when she undressed and showed her own physical pain, her deformities in her back because of the cancer that she's had as a child as a result of her father's inheritance from Agent Orange. Uh, She's been in pain all of her life. But when she stripped off and on stage and showed us not only her breasts, which was fine, there's no worry about that, but to turn around and see her crooked spine. Yeah. And that you go, ah, that's what method acting is about. It's not about Mm. self-indulging in any way at all. It's using what you know about yourself to make this real. And so her sense of being, as a kid, Richard III himself being deformed and then the bullying and the discrimination that he as a young prince in England in that period coped he says justifies and that's Kate said that's what I'm bringing I understand having grown up all my life with deformity with discrimination with inability to shift I understand Mm. why Richard does what he does so I can play this role and the courage of that which I think is method it's it's good method rather than the other self indulgent stuff. Yes, yeah, the yeah. You, you know who you are. You feel you, you're not happy with it, but you feel confident about revealing it without diminishing yourself or embarrassing yourself. Mm. It's where you, as an actor, become aware of who you are. What I said earlier, you know, I think you are your best resource, and it's the courage to use that then. And that courage has got to, you know, it's, it's my exercise today in the class I had just before this interview. You know, the kids are developing a personal device speech uh, based on a major turning point in their life, which they've chosen and so they can think about it, but they've got to have the courage that, what do I tell this group? And if you can do that, because that exercise is naked, you know, they will never have to do it again because... When you're playing a role, at least you can pretend you've got the mask of a character. This yes. is not really me. This is the character. Yeah. But to really succeed ele- elementally, you have to, with poetic license, use those bits to be the betterest, to be the murderer, to be the rapist, to be being... I'm not that, but I know about it. And yeah. you have the courage to be judged that way. Yeah. And that's what the great actors are able to do. Well... Yesterday, Ben actually got me to do an exercise, which basically I was, uh, it was a a scene, but there is this chunky kind of, and it was a comedy, but um, it's this chunky monologue bit that I was going to have to do. And basically it was a rant. Um, And you can play a rant as a rant, you know, Mm. you just kind of go into it and you get through it and you power through it and you go, yep, that's a rant. but what we did yesterday was basically I had to do this exercise that would flow into the scene where Ben said to me, 
tell me something in this moment that you don't want me to know. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so I would have to do that and um, basically get into this place of saying all of these things that, well, I don't want you to know this and this is why, but this is why I feel that way. And then, but should I feel that way? But it's okay to feel mm-hmm. that way. And then you would go and let's go into the scene. Yeah. And it made whatever the text was so much more interesting mm-hmm. because it becomes then then you take on that emotion of whatever you were feeling in that moment of telling someone yeah. what don't I want you to know yes but I go to the next level so that's great yeah for a rehearsal process but after that I say okay now you've changed that comma you've changed that full stop mm. you've substituted words you're making it comfortable for yourself yes but it's not the character so it's very interesting to read again with the Adam Driver, Scarlett Johansson in Marriage Story because people think that quarrel, the fam- it's just astonishing. They think it's an improvisation, but no, it's word perfect. Mm. So what they've done is they've improvised all of that stuff around and then they've gradually come back to the script. So what they've explored in the unharnessing and personalising it as you as Ben was getting you to do, the secret in how to getting it, and then it's harnessed yes. by your knowledge of the text. Yeah. So that they've learnt not just the words and the order of the words, but they've also learnt comma, full stop, exclamation mark, question mark, ellipse, beat, pause or silence. What's the difference? They learnt that as well as. So in the moment of filming... They're able to, they stick within the boundaries of the writing, but they are able to improvise the emotional life within that content. They never break out. Mm. They never reveal themselves. Yeah. They're, they're using themselves, selecting them, those parts of themselves that make what's written on the page work, not what they feel is right. Yes. So, so Michael Caine talks about Uh, acting the preparation is all preparing so all of that stuff of the emotional stuff you practice that in the out go home put go i i I think that actors are crazy in the sense that we should have like this room you have here we should have your you should have at home or have available to you a soundproof room as a piano player would as a trombonist or so and you've got to play it at full belt so you mm, can learn yeah. what the expanse is so that then you can edit it down and take find the points that you construct with craft. How do you do that? Because you can't play at that level, but your body has to know that level of the melodrama. Most actors are happy with the melodramatic effect. They have a catharsis. Well, if you're having the catharsis, I promise you the audience isn't. <laughs> I promise you, they're yeah. not. They're bored. They're watching you having a good time. Yes, very true. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I'm just thinking back to that feeling of, oh yes, that melodramatic feel feels real good. Yeah, it does. But um, yeah, that's it. It does. It that's the only purpose that it serves. That's right. Yourself, essentially. And, yeah, yeah, yeah. You've got to serve. You have to serve the audience, and you have to serve the writer. Your job is to get the audience to do the acting for you. The great performances are those where, you know, like you are watching Scorsese's uh, The Irishman, three and a half hours long, you know. (laughs) But I came out and said, that didn't feel like that at all. Yeah. It didn't feel like that. And what happened was that actors 
uh, are so immersed in what they do that I, the reason why I didn't feel long was because I'm working with them, I'm endowing them, I'm so focused on what they're offering me and I'm, work, I'm acting with them. Whereas those other performances where they ask you to watch them, to admire them, that's when you get bored. You start thinking about the bus home or the, I'm going to have sausages tonight or I've got to go to the, get, pick up that book from the library. Mm-hmm. Your concentration goes because you know what's going to happen and you know that they're just showing off. So, yeah, yeah, I get it, I get it. Whereas the really great actors are you know, like so uh, detailed and they are making selected uh, offers that you have to interpret. You have to endow it. Yeah. And I think that's what contemporary film is moving more and more. Steve McQueen and, you know, the recent film, The King, you know, with Timothy Chalamet. And those. What I love about the writing, of that, and all the performances are great in that film, but what I love particularly about the writing, not only have they written great speaking text, but they've also written pauses. They've written silences where the actor is able to just, the camera can just look at them mm. and the story still is moving forward at a galloping rate. So the audience are reading what the offers are, knowing what the circumstances are up to it. And then I invent the story with you. Then you come to your script again. Mm. But the, what, uh, David, what the, the writer there and the two writers in that have given is the space for the actor to give the opportunity for the audience to be engaged actively, creatively, so that the audience have the catharsis Mm. not the character yes well do you think um in in the sense of a pause in a script Mm. um i think that sometimes actors have a tendency to indulge in a pause Mm. um so what kind of what is the difference then between a writer writing in a pause and the actor kind of having the story within the pause and um then in another case, an actor thinking, if I pause here, it's going to be very dramatic. Do you th- That's wrong. Yeah. What the writer has written. Your job is to, to reveal what the writer has written, not what you want to do. Yes. You've got to use yourself to serve. The writer is God. And too many actors are, think that they're better writers than the writer itself. <laughs> you know, and, you know yeah. and of course we're given awful scripts and... But you apply a set of rules, and if the rules work, then you stay with it. If the rules aren't working, you know the writing is bad, let's change it. But you've, you have a, a series of rules that you go through just then. But if, if it's not working, then you have to rewrite. But I promise you, you know, which is why when I'm teaching, I usually work with the best writers available, because mm. the writer does 90% of the work for any actor. Mm. All you've got to do is learn to read a script accurately. Sure. And that means thinking, researching, preparing, all of that stuff. You know, Mm. it's why, yeah, yeah. (laughs) And essentially, you know, essentially the actor is lazy. And my experience is the Australian actor is the laziest actors that I've ever worked with. They're fucking lazy they can go from rehearsal and come back to where they be, where they, where they left it last night instead of taking it forward to sure. bring them back. Now, what do you, what's your offer? What did you learn yesterday? And how are you engaging? Most of them go home, drink, watch TV, uh, have sex, have a good time, come back again and say, oh, okay, tell me what to do. Uh, that's not my job. Sure. It's not my job. 
Is that something that you discovered after working overseas or was it something that you were already discovering? I know. <clears throat> it's something that's become clearer having worked overseas. Uh, but certainly, I remember when I went across the first time and I was fortunate enough to be an auditor in the American Conservative Theatre School. Mm -hmm. And I had been working for 12 years and never out of work, you know, and I got the scholarship. And because I would have gone to Italy if I'd been able to speak <laughs> Italian, but I didn't, so because I was impressed with some theatre I'd seen over there. But I ended up at ACT uh, in San Francisco. Uh, and what auditing those classes were after my NIDA training and then working professionally for 12 years across the different genres, uh, I, I, I learned, oh, because I used to perform and rehearse to ensure my next job instead of interrogating the script to create the character. So I would ignore okay. commas, full stops, beats, pauses, the strict, I would ignore it all and just go straight through. And what I did was acceptable and good, which is why I continually worked, because I could produce the goods. Mm. But I wasn't an actor. I wasn't an artist. I was simply, my super objective was to ensure that I'm not, not difficult, that uh, I'm able to rehearse and I can produce some acceptable good. Whereas when I came back from America after that, and I'd say, hey, can we just stop? Can we discuss this comma? And they'd look at you. <laughs> and I said, we need to talk about this because we're ignoring that. Why do you think the writer has decided to put that there? They don't want to waste time. They just want to learn the lines, get it into a rough state, go down to the pub, come back again, do the tech and put on the play. Uh, so I came back. So I got less work. <laughs> you know, it, I was regarded as a difficult actor. Really? Well, yeah. Well, I mean, Judy Davis is regarded as difficult because she interrogates stuff. Marta Dusseldorf sometimes is regarded as being difficult because she expects things. But all she expects is another art artist, and they're both the, another artist, to be working as hard as they are. They want their performances to be changed by what you give them. Mm. And if you don't give them anything, if you... It's boring for them. It's boring. You need to act. That's why, you know, last night I saw the Beauty Queen of Lenane with Nonnie Hazelhurst and uh, mm -hmm. uh, Yale Stone. And you look at the... Oh, they push each other. Mm. And the other actor has to meet where the other actor's just finished that line. You've got to meet it and then top it. And then she has to top it. They're improvising within the boundaries of their text with such security and such courage and such fun that you just, your jaw drops like, oh, that's <laughs> what I call great that's acting. It. Yeah. And that's what Adam Driver and Scarlett Johansson talk about, the, the chemistry between those two and their ambitions and their ideals of what being an actor is as an artist is the same. And so that's why you get the quality of work on the screen that you have up there. Mm. Well, I mean, it's nice to know that you didn't get it right from the start. <laughs> I'm sure everyone's thinking, oh, thank God, Kevin wasn't born amazing. <laughs> no, never, 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 never. No, never, never, never. But I became known as a difficult actor because of my... It seemed to be time-wasting, but, you know, I go, you can't... If you... So when I directed Three Sisters, I've got a six-week rehearsal period... I will spend oh. two weeks on Act One, and yeah. everyone's going, we've only got four weeks to do another three. But if you've done Act One, you've taught the method, 
You've taught the way to interrogate it. The actors then get excited. And you can put two and three and four up in two weeks, the same as you put up Act One, because yes. you've laid the plans. This is the way we're approaching the work, <clears throat> etc. Whereas some people like get the four acts up in the first week, you know, and you go, but so many mistakes have been made because you've got to go so fast. You haven't had yes, time to... Yeah deal with it uh, and they kind of become ingrained there yeah you well go, we once can't it's, fix all no of it's them. once it's fused it's uh, difficult to undo that fuse yeah you know, to get it right so i prefer to go really slowly in those early stages so that everyone gets onto the same page then you can then you find that they go they've got an appetite and they understand each other they understand the text and the way that i'm working and shorthand language you go straight to it yeah so when, when you say that you became regarded as a difficult actor, did that affect you um, personally yeah, in a way? Yeah, my career. Yeah. You know, opportunities started to close down because uh, sure. people... There's a, and I was an actor, you know? So directors get intimidated when actors have voices. Interesting. They get like... Who are you? I'm the director. I've employed you. But no, no, no. This is a collaboration. And the interesting thing is that as actors, we it's expensive to be an actor. We put our lives on show every night from 8 o'clock to 10.30 or 11. The peak of our day is at 10.30. We're doing this every night, every eight times a week. We're expending and revealing our lives up there, depending upon the difficulty of the role. And we have to do it eight times a week. And you come opening night and we may never see you again. You never have to come in and do this eight times. We have to, I have to feel safe and secure in here. Give me the time to breathe into this. Mm. Don't rush it. Most direct, and so, and directors feel, who's this arrogant shit telling me what to do with my play? Mm -hmm. No, it's our play and you're going to walk away after opening night and rarely see it and we still have to do it at our personal risk mm. it's very difficult well i think with film it becomes a little bit more difficult in a sense that you are on a, a schedule you know yeah, you yeah, have yeah. to get things done and so and you don't always get a rehearsal period no, as well so um i think in some instances when you say look we're about to do this scene director like mm -hmm. we need to discuss this part it kind of yeah, in, uh, I guess you have to just um, have the, the basis of your training really there That's in order right. to well, kind of do That's why you need yourself. a soundproof room to rehearse it. <laughs> yes. And you bring in an offer to the director. Yes. And you're not waiting for him to tell you what to do. You yeah. uh, make off offers which then he will either note or accept in whenever. And then when you... I mean, sometimes, as you know, you don't actually meet the other actor until the shooting day. You know, they're... Yeah. Oh, and you may have a line run if you're lucky and then yeah. after that so you have to be so secure not just about what you have to say but what has the other actors got to say to you mm. uh, so you have to have a plan a you have to know plan a and this is what the scene's about and it's always about my character <laughs> you're the supporting <laughs> thing but of course you're over there and you go no it's about me and this is what it is and so you've got plan i've got plan a but if we're really prepared when we begin we go to plan b then the next line is plan C. But we're so secure about our knowledge of the scene because of all of the preparation, we can improvise second to second to second to second and go from mm. plan A, B, C, D, E, F, G, H, I, J, K and feel really good about it. Yes. But you have to know 
your role and the other person's role and you have to know both and then they're not ever going to do what you thought they were going to do <laughs> no. so, but you're you know it well you know what they're going to say and you know what you're going to say as response but they're saying it this way so you've got to make instantaneously and that's where you know people talk about acting so that that's where it being in the moment is the improvisationary part of being an actor and that's why, you know, Lynn Pierce's class with improvisation, mm. that's why they're essential. And they've got nothing to do with, you know, there are those improvisations where you can just play around and investigate. But the great films are those films where you are literally doing what the writer wrote. Mm-hmm. So, you know, Bombard's film, Marriage Story, apparently there's not a moment of improvisation in that script. It looks like it. Isn't it interesting that some audiences then, when you find out that there are improvised moments in within a movie and they go, did you know that line was improvised? Yeah. Oh, that was so good. I can't believe that that <laughs> actor, and it's just kind of stroking the actor's ego almost, yeah, 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 kind of yeah, going, yeah. keep doing that. Yeah, but yeah. in reality, I think you can only go so far yeah. with those moments until yeah. Yeah. they go, I think you better to the script you know it's all here for you well, what are you doing i assure you at the a level of filmmaking you'll stick to the script mm. if you don't you won't ever get to the a level mm. you just never will get to the a level yes <laughs> do you think that that is different within genres um what i mean by that is that I guess comedy does yeah, well, allow... You, know, you, you look at Hangover and there's lots of improvisation in yeah. that film, but the reason why it's not an A film is sure. because there's too much playing about. Sure. You know, when you look at the screwball comedies of, say, His Girl Friday or uh, Bringing Up Baby or uh, The Lady Eve, the, it looks as if... Uh, Annie Hall. Mm-hmm. It, it looks as if they're improvising, but they're not. They're strictly script and... It, that's the that's why that's why they're actors. Sure. Because it looks as if it's happening in the moment, but it's not. It's refined technique, and trust the players, Woody Allen and Diane Keaton. You know, later on Mia Farrow, they play. They're a team, and they have a shorthand language. Mm. And they can get to it, and it makes it looks as if it's spontaneous. You know, the famous lobster scene in Annie Hall. Like, my God, it's an it's not improvised. Yeah, <laughs> like the dropping of the lobster and all of that. I mean, because there is improvisation in it, but the text and the, the text, what hap- what the mapping of the scene is what is being written, yes. not what they discover on the floor. Yes. One thing. Moving on. Mm-hmm. <laughs> One thing that I really wanted to ask you about is something that I have very much discovered from doing a podcast is that the power of what you say to someone um, and the power of how you kind of the energy that you give and how you react to what they are saying to you can actually make or break someone. And the reason that I've kind of discovered it when doing podcasting is that it is absolutely detrimental that I listen to you and I actually listen to what you're saying. And then what I say can make or break the next thing that you're going to say. But then I've actually discovered that in taking that into my day-to-day life, generally I've had a few instances recently where someone has said something very important to me and 
the simple things that I say back, like whether that be you are enough or what you're feeling is valid or you are beautiful or something like that had such a great effect on kind of the rest of how they feel in that moment. And so obviously you're dealing with a lot of actors mm. and what you say to them can make or break mm. um, their performance. So when you first started out teaching, was that something that you were kind of learning and yes. yeah, now yeah. do you kind of, how do you go about kind yeah. of well, thinking? It's, well, it's something that you learn, you know, and part, I think a, the really good teachers aren't gurus. Yes. And you know there are too many gurus teaching. Mm -hmm. It's about them, not about the person they're working for. Mm -hmm. So get over that hump when you realise it's not me, it's this person here. So, But the skill that I have developed, because, you know, I've been teaching for 30-odd years, you know, learning. And my teaching method evolves so what I taught last year is not necessarily exactly what the form and structure is, but what I do, the reason why at the age I am, 71, turning 72, people say, why aren't you retired? I said, because I actually love teaching because it's a stimulating improvisation. Mm. And I have to do A with the collection of a group. So what's the energy of the group? Now, how do I phrase this so the group get it? Now... Each individual, 12 in a class, each one of them is a completely different play when I deal one-on-one. -on -one. And what I have developed is a, my focus and concentration is mm. so acute, really. Mm. Uh, you know, I, I write a blog, as you probably know. Yes. I don't take notes. What I write is what I saw, and I remember it all. And I have this detail of... So I have developed a, an observational detail. And the other thing that I've, I've observed is as well is that, right, this is the time to press that button now. Or, yeah. no, I can't do it yet. They're not ready to hear this. I've got to just move on and not comment on it. And, you know, so some students go, you know, why didn't you tell me this three years ago? Uh, because, <laughs> A, you haven't revealed the need for it, and or B... I didn't think you were ready for it yet. We had to get other things in place before I could say that to you. So it's a refined, developed, my learning process is that refined and developed uh, sense of serving the actor, not myself, serving them. You know, so sometimes you know, some of the acting teachers come out from America and some, I think they're great teachers, but there's also a tendency for some of them, since there are auditors, to create a dramatic moment. Yeah, okay. And I, and I find they will say something inappropriate to an actor for the audiences. Oh, wow, isn't he great or isn't she great? You know, rather than, no, no, no. For, forget that they might be paying 150 bucks here to watch you. Mm. But your job is not to entertain them. Your job is to assist this person that you're working with. And sometimes I think that gets blurred. Yeah. And so some actors come out of uh, some of those classes damaged, being told something that they've been told before, but they're working on it, but it's exposed in this public forum. Right? Mm. So I don't like, I won't, I don't like doing that. I don't, you know, I, I understand that to make money, they may have to sell auditing seats, but you can't 
you've always got to be concerned about this artist and observing them closely. And if I say that, it's going to be good for them, but harmful. I won't say it yet. I can't. You know, it's like I was once asked, you know, would I do some coaching sessions with the world's model, you know, first, you know, that model thing. And I, I said to them, why do you want me to do it? Because we heard you make actors cry. And I went... <laughs> do you? I, said, I don't make actors cry. I lead them to a place where they can sort of decide to cry or not cry. And if they do, we can move through that catharsis because I can help. If they don't, I can move through that as well. But my intention is not to make them cry. And if you think you're employing me so I can make that model cry for good television, fuck off. Mm. That's not my... I'm an artist and I care for the people I work with. I don't make people cry for the sake of drama. It's, It's not about me. It's about developing the confidence of this individual to have the courage to use their life. And when they're ready, they will. When If they never get ready. You know, there are elements in my acting toolkit which are very well locked in Pandora's box and I will never open it. Mm-hmm. So I'll bullshit th- through those moments in my career. And I know I'm bullshitting, but I can give a good facsimile of it, but I won't open that box because I'm scared of what might happen to me if I open it. So I never encourage my actors to go to a place that they're not comfortable with. They must feel safe. And you can lie. Actors are good liars. And even though they're not, uh, they don't feel satisfied because they know that they're bullshitting through this moment, I'd rather get them through that safely than to say, you must open that box. Sure. Now, and then your life's fucked up for the next, you know, for the rest of time or for six months. I'm not, I'm a director, I'm an actor, I'm not a psychiatrist. If you were a psychiatrist, you'd be paying me much more money and the money that you're paying me to do this acting class. Yeah. Forget it. And so it's that care of the artist, I think. You know, like you've got... And you, I make judgments. People ask me for coaching, you know, now and again. And they come in and you go, you said that this actor, this young person is not stable enough to go where we need to go to develop them. I can't teach you anymore. So I usually have <laughs> when people ask me, and please let this podcast encourage people to take me on a one-on-one coach. <laughs> yeah. You know, like when I first meet somebody I don't know, I will meet them in a public space, which is usually <clears throat> the Hilton coffee shop in George Street. <laughs> so when I say no to them, they can't kill me, you know. Because, <laughs> There's witnesses. <laughs> yeah, they, that's right. And it's a public space. So I'm very careful about And I, I've developed, and all good acting teachers developed a, a vibrating machine. They're able to read the temperament of an individual generally well yes. and say they're not ready for this class. What they're, you know, so I did some work a few years ago with a soldier who actually would have been a, but his post-traumatic stress disorder was so obvious that mm. he couldn't go to the places that he needed to go to. So you just say, I can't, I, you don't say that to him, but you just say, I'm not available, I'm sorry, I've got something else on, and da la 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 so you've got to make those those kinds of decisions, you know. Like, and that get horrible people that ask me to do the model. They're, they're going to pay me a fortune per mm. hour, a fortune. And people would go, "You just said no to four hundred dollars an hour because of moral principle." Yeah, mm-hmm. uh, money means nothing, you know. Yeah. They just don't, some the elements of the industry, particularly the commercial. They don't understand what we're doing. They have no concept of the risk 
that we take as actors and directors to present work on screen or on stage. They just don't get it. They don't understand what we do. Mm. Well, I think if you... Every night. Yeah. <laughs> Every take. Every day. I think if you took that modelling work on, not only is it not being true to kind of your teachings, but it is kind of self-damaging as it's, well. It's criminal. Yeah. And I think it's criminal as well. Yeah. You know. Well, then from that, um, because you are kind of pretty much serving someone else every day, what is the process that you take on in order to kind of then go away and make sure that you are... <laughs> <laughs> you know, you know, like kind of looking after it's, it's, yourself as it's well. It's very amusing, you know, like particularly when I'm studying a round of classes, you know, like here at the hub, I might be doing eight weeks. I'm always, I never know, I know what my structure is in my phone, but I never know how to begin. Huh? How do I start this? You know, I'm like a nervous wreck every time. Like, really? I know, yeah. And then, of course, you come into a class and like now we're on to that stage where they're doing these devised monologues using a personal turning point like okay what's going to come up will I be able to handle this should we do this oh I'll keep talking I can't start yet because I'm not ready oh, no no Kevin you've only got three hours you've got to get through you've got to start now okay 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 I'll start now okay go go ah go ah just as a nervous wreck as the actor getting prepared to do it like as I said to you it's an improvisation I don't yeah. know what's going to happen in this class here are the tasks jump these obstacles, but I don't know whether they can do the tasks or jump the obstacle. So if they get across, I can be happy and secure them. But if they don't, how am I going to negotiate that so they don't leave this room hurt, damaged or uh, destroyed? Yes. That's my, my major concern is, and we're working in a field where if the actor isn't well or not mature enough yet, you can hurt mm. them, not mm. only instantly, but permanently maybe. So as a young teacher at NIDA, you know, when I first began intensely, I was much tougher and much rougher, kind of. A, I, I would force the students to cathartic points. And then I realized a few, like, hmm, you know, when they're on that film set, I'm not going to be there to force them to that cathartic point. So they have to do this themselves. Mm. So I have to encourage them to have the courage to do it themselves. Rather Unless they want to hire, of... they can hire me, and yeah. I'll bully them to that to that <laughs> catharsis. Sure. But that's not what an, an actor has been employed because they can do it by themselves. So mm. my job is to teach an artist to be independent, and they will what they do. That mm. they don't have to be bullied into it. Yes. And I think there's so much bullying that goes on. And so as a younger teacher. I was, inverted commas, a bully, never intentional, but I realised, no, they've got to make the choice of turning the key. Here's the key, take it. Here's the water, drink it. But I can't force you to turn the key, mm. nor can I force you to drink. I've given you it, I've taken you here, it's your choice. And I think that, you know, when I look, as I said at the beginning of this podcast, <clears throat> I feel a failure, you know, my career. I'm not the world's greatest actor. But I realised that it was I didn't turn the key. I didn't drink the water. Right. I, I made the choice. I'm responsible for where I am at. No one else, no teacher, 
no lack of option, not my agent, not anything. It is my choice that has given me the trajectory that I'm on. No one else forced me to do this. I made choices, consciously or unconsciously, mm-hmm. and here I am. This is who I am. It's not what I wanted, but this is where I am. But I'm responsible for being where I am. Mm. You are, not anyone else. Your choice. It's a free choice. Yeah. You elect to open the box or not. You elect to bullshit through or not. You do it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I think that's an important lesson that, again, when you are an actor starting out, it's one of the important lessons that you do learn is that it is it is on you yeah. it is it's not oh you're not getting work yeah, it's right. your agent's fault no, no it's not it's, you. it's all on you and yeah. and that is a scary thought and yeah. also a very I mean, freeing thought yeah it's, it's what you know and it's like those people that get it are those that are working tooth and nail you know the reason why yes. the hub was set up was because graduates I'd worked with were coming back from LA and saying everybody over there is in class all the time we need somewhere to go to class to mm. re- and that's why the hub began to provide yeah. the opportunity here come here refine your skills but of course Australian actors go oh, I don't have the time B or oh, I don't want to spend the money and you just say well you chose that that's your choice yeah. and what we discovered at the hub early way back because I was one of the foundation yes, yeah. teachers with Ollie who asked me to do it. Uh, what we found is that <clears throat> those people that were doing classes were getting work. It might be a commercial or whatever, but because they were working in a class, their instrument, their way of thinking, their emotional availability, their technical skills were available for the audition. Mm. So because they'd been at work and not lying on their couch eating potato chips and watching television. <laughs> they do that after. You know, uh, uh, they were actually doing it. Mm. And so what the guys coming back from LA were discovering, the American actor or those that are succeeding are doing it every day. A, they're giving their time to practice. Two, they're giving their money to practice. Mm. And they're making strategic choices of what money they're spending where. They're not going to go to that cocktail party. They're not going to go to the pub. They're going to do this. Uh, So I can afford that. Mm. And, you know, our world that we work in, us as actors, none of us, uh, very few of us are going to be rich. So it's about how much do you want this? What are you going to give up to get what you want? Too many actors are waiting to be spoon-fed the opportunity rather than working for it. Sure. It's working for it. You know, at NIDA, you know, in any one year, you know, you'd see 1,800 students and you'd select 24. And some people you thought, wow, they're going to be great. But they came in and they didn't do any work in the three years. They left the school exactly the way they entered because they thought NIDA will be the rubber stamp. We'll get a career. And then there are other kids that came in and they knew why they were there and worked and they just developed, you know. You know, like someone like... <clears throat> Kate Blanchett, for instance, or Sarah Snook, or Ryan Kaur. Ryan, who'd had a, you know, a career as a child TV star, such a, he came at the age of eighteen. Sarah came at the age of eighteen. Kate was a little older, but they they did the course. Sure. That they were gifted and talented. They didn't really need to do neither, except to get the technical skills. 
but they appreciated what they were being offered and they did everything. And is that and they, the, and they grew? Yeah, is that the because you have taught so many accomplished actors? That's right. Is that the through line that you the find? The through line is that their worth ethic as a student was incredible. Okay. The work ethic of the student was incredible. Very few of them that didn't have the discipline or ethic uh, have succeeded. It's those people that surrendered. I know why I'm going to NIDA for three years. I need this, 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 and this, and this, and this. And I'm going to get it. So they did it, and they grew as a result of it. Mm. And that fundamentally is the through line. And, you know, and even today, you know, talking to Ryan and, or, or getting an email from Ryan or Sarah or uh, Eamon, Eamon Farron and these people, you know, they write back and say, I hear your voice every time I, I take a shoot. I hear, comma, full stop, pause. Or if they know I'm in the house, they panic because they haven't done this or that. And I say, well, I can't see that you haven't. I like this or that. But if, I, if they ask me, I tell them the truth. No, if you're not doing this, you need to do that. Which is right. The blog came in. The blog came out of a student saying, we need acting lessons. Would you write a blog? And so if you read my blog, it's usually talking about the acting or the writing, etc. So I use it as a tool to refresh my students to stimulate them if they're reading it uh, to rethink what they've already know but they've forgotten or let it slide I think that you can never relearn something oh, I don't know right now I'm relearning a few things that I already know and it's very powerful because you're always coming back to something with new experiences mm -hmm. and so it is relearning it and what you've heard room. makes more sense now. Exactly. Or, yeah. Or, why did I believe that? That's bullshit. Now I know. Yep. It's it's that it's being open in the learning process. Yeah. Being willing to grow and to change. Being willing to evolve. You know, which is why, you know, you've got to go and you've got to go to the cinema and you, you you've got to see what what are they doing in the King? What is that acting style? What's Steve McQueen doing there? Or What's Adam Driver? How's he doing it? What, etc. Or Scorsese's those three veteran actors giving performances that are almost invisible. You need to do it, and as well as that, I think you know, working at a film school, you say, okay, let's look at this 1936 film, Marie Antoinette. With you know, look at wow, they made good movies then, and aren't they good actors? Ah, uh, yeah. You're simply in, the wheel has been invented. <laughs> so. Watch from your, from what, what, what's your heritage? Stand on the shoulders of greatness by knowing what has happened before you. Mm. You've got to have a historical uh, perspective. You're not, you're not new. You're not going to do anything that no one's ever done before. Yeah. And that's, that's, that's the thing that a lot of actors do aim for, isn't it? Yeah, so it's interesting, you know, like with this now <clears throat> acting where the spaces are given with the camera, it's going back to silent screen acting. Mm. So if you want to develop in the, in the contemporary film world at the cutting edge of it, I would suggest that you start watching the great silent films. See how they use their bodies and their faces and their, and, uh, to tell a story without the words. Because that's where we're moving towards. We're moving to more and more silent moments. So, okay, let's look at these. Here are the, here's a list of six or seven of the great silent films watch it 
these are the great silent film actors. What are they doing? Mm. You know, like recently I, I was in a pub up at Redfern, the Tudor, and uh, on, in one of the rooms where you eat, uh, they've got a screen and they show old films. Oh, yeah. And I had a black and white Ingrid Bergman and Cary Grant in Suspicion or one of those films. But the sound was down. So all you could see was their faces and not hear the dialogue. Incredible. The acting in the angle of the face or the lift of the eyebrow. You, you understood the story. You understood their relationship. They're so expert, you know, like mm. simply brilliant. And that's, they're of course, they didn't act in silent movies, those two. <clears throat> but they watched it as kids. So yes. they're taking that as part of their heritage forward in developing the acting style. Well, what seems to be happening at the moment is this kind of the silences in films, you know, 12 Years a Slave where the camera just sits on him or she's been flogged over here with the, by a slave owner and the camera just, he's telling the story. You're not looking at her. You can hear her screams. You can hear that, but you don't see the violence. You just see the post-traumatic effect of the violence on this character and they don't speak a word. <clears throat> and the camera doesn't move in or doesn't move out, just sits there. And this so silent squeal, look at it. That's your job. Go back, look at your heritage. Mm -hmm. And you know how lucky your generation is. You know, when with DVD or streaming, you can get anything that you want at any time. In yes. my day, you know, I'd see Lawrence of Arabia when it was released. And I'd have to wait 12 years for it to have one screening in an art house cinema. Yeah. So you'd have to go to look at it because there was no other available way to see it. Mm -hmm. No. And you guys have got it at your fingertips 24-7. Which makes us more lazy in yeah. a sense, which is disappointing. And yeah, yeah. Because you are literally handed all of these resources. Yeah, you go, yeah, yeah I'll, I'll look at it later. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Kind of thing. And yeah, as you know, um, and the great theme of most playwrights uh, is time. You know, like, do mm. you have, to, you don't, you, you will never have enough time to do all that. So you've got to work a strategy. I have to do this, 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 priorities. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, where you lay on the couch and just cabbage patch your way out of whatever I'm going to watch. No, you have to say, no, no, I've only got four hours. I understand this is good. I need to watch that. The other stuff, the, the 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 crime fiction, the true crime fiction, or the rape scene, the rape stuff, or I can't. That's not got anything to do with what I'm doing. This is what I need to do. You have to prioritize. Hmm. You know, I'm 72 next year, as I mentioned earlier, but I promise you, I feel as if I'm 18. And as you get older, time goes faster. You blink, and it's you're five years older, blink you nearer death than ever before. And it goes so fast. Hmm. Time is, that's our biggest enemy. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> and as I'm discovering old age as well, no one tells you for that. As your body deteriorates, etc., etc. Hmm, no one ever warned us about this. <laughs> mm. Well, you're warning us now. Yeah, yeah, that's yeah, so exactly Everyone right. heed Kevin's Think warning. about it. Make sure you buy a house that's got public transport and no steps, you know. <laughs> <laughs> the 
housing market is just going to completely change now yeah. because of this podcast. Yeah, exactly. Friends going to say, I can't have steps. Yeah. Kevin said so. Yeah, well, <laughs> you can have steps now, but I promise you at a certain age, you're going to go, I can't do that. I have to sell this house. <laughs> yeah. And that's trauma. <laughs> You can bring that into your work yeah, yeah. <laughs> or lock it in the box, either yeah. or. Well, we've we've been going for a while. Okay. <laughs> um, thank you so much for being on the podcast and giving me your time and um, yeah, everything that you had to say. As always, I knew it was going to be incredibly helpful. Um, so yeah, um, you're you're still teaching at the hub. Yep. Um, you've got a class coming up soon as well. Oh, uh, just a it's a one day class. Mm-hmm. Uh, people that have worked with me, you know, they've only worked solo. They're going to do scene work, but it's only one day. Sure. Situation. Yeah. Sure. But I'm I'm sure we'll have you back at some point <laughs> as well. Certainly. Yeah. Um, so keep an ear out for when Kevin is doing classes um, because yeah. He's clearly great. (laughs) Well, thank you very much for being here and we'll talk to you soon. Okay.